This program is Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and I'm David Flint, and I'm delighted to have a very special guest today, John David Olson, who was born in the United States and educated at the University of Washington in Seattle, and thereafter had a very interesting international career, including a number of years uh, working for Microsoft in Paris, and uh, he's lived in Australia for about 10 years, and apart from his private activities, has played a very significant role in a number of organizations. One is Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, which is very interesting to have someone of an American background there, and also in the English-speaking union, which we'll come to, and the very prestigious International Churchill Society, in which he is the director of digital. So, John, welcome to uh, Save the Nation. John, you've lived in uh, both the Constitutional Republic and a Constitutional Monarchy. In uh, the next Spectator magazine, which comes out, uh, I think, on Friday, I'm writing about the two Durham reports the Durham Report of 1839, which was the famous Durham Report and the one that's just been released in the United States. And uh, I say with some exaggeration that uh, the present incumbent of the presidency of the United States probably wouldn't last for a minute as a prime minister in a Commonwealth country because uh, his cabinet would probably move against him and. Uh, he'd probably lose the confidence of the lower house. And uh, we have a habit in, in Commonwealth countries of quickly changing prime ministers when we don't think that they're performing because it's a collective leadership. Uh, I, I, and I also say that, uh, observe that uh, in the United States, it would be impossible to remove what is in effect uh, an elected monarch and uh, no no president has ever been removed by the Senate. We did have resignations, including the resignation of President Nixon, but no president has ever been removed formally according to the process. Do you see this as, a, as an advantage or a disadvantage or just appropriate for the different countries? Well, it's interesting to have lived under both systems uh, I think there's certainly some limitations to the American uh, representative republic because, as you know, it's not a, a, a true democracy because of the Electoral College. Uh, I think that one of the advantages that we have as a con in, in a constitutional monarchy is that we have multiple parties. We have, we have, as you say, you know, the ability for the the parliament to remove someone if they have lost confidence in the, in the uh, prime minister. And I think that, the, as we've seen in recent years, the impeachment process is very cumbersome and has a, an extremely high bar to, to prove any sorts of wrongdoing. And it, it, it seems that it's, um, it, it's not a very effective process. That would seem to be true. And, uh... I, I used to think that uh, there was not much difference between the two systems when you looked at the effects that uh, uh, they both led to 
democratic government under the rule of law and uh, uh, there wasn't that much difference. But I've come to the conclusion that there is a significant difference when you have a president who there is a, about whom there's a feeling that perhaps he should no longer be the president. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, that is one of the strengths of the constitutional monarchy is that is that once a leader of the party has lost confidence, you know, then uh, they can quite easily be removed. Um, you know, I think one of the things that the, that's a significant difference in the two systems is the fact that we have a in our system, a benevolent monarch who really doesn't have any executive power. We have a head of state in our governor general who holds the reserve powers, which are rarely, fortunately, rarely used, but very important. And it's this, it's a nonpartisan checks and balances, uh, you know, on, uh, on the, the government of the day. I think it was, uh, and you, you may correct me on this because you probably will know the exact attribution. I think it was either George V or Edward VII in the early part of the 1900s, who said, it's my job, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't know an exact quote, but it's something to the effect of, it's my job to protect my people from the politicians. And I think that that's exactly right. I think that sums it up in a line that, that it really is a, um, uh, there's a constitutional, there, the, the monarch is a cons constitutional guardian. And, uh, and I think that 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 is something that is lacking in the American system. There are certainly checks and balances between the branches of government, but, but not, not as effective, I don't think, as a constitutional monarchy. I, uh, I have a piece in Spectator, as I mentioned, about the two Durham reports. There was a famous Durham report in the 19th century, and uh, it really led to, the, it led to the Commonwealth. It led to the British agreeing to create constitutional uh, monarchies in each of the dominions with their own Westminster systems. And I, I mentioned that he, he was, Lord Lambton was the man, he became the uh, first Earl of Durham. And uh, he, he was a man of uh, such liberal tendencies that I think if he had been the prime minister at the time of uh, George III, there would not have been a war of independence. He would have immediately seen that the colonies were quite capable of governing themselves. They already had uh, uh, elected assemblies and that uh, the thing to do was be to replicate the, the system in London in each of the colonies rather than fighting over it. But that these things don't happen. Uh, we have, as you know, we've had a number of Republican movements. Uh, in the charter of Australia's constitutional monarchy written by a High Court judge, Michael Kirby, he says that some of us believe, some of the constitutional monarchists believe that we are already a republic, a crowned republic, and what we don't need is a politician's republic. But there's an interesting fact which is not well known that in 1891 at the first of the federation conventions there are two conventions and the first one one of the delegates proposed that the position of governor general be such that it could 
soon become elective rather than saying that there shall be a governor general appointed by the queen. It will just say there, there shall be a governor general. And uh, his argument was that uh, eventually that should become elective and uh, the result would be that the governor general in many ways would become something like the American president with his vast powers on paper, particularly if he were elected. That was soundly rejected, overwhelmingly rejected by the, by the people at the first convention. The interesting thing I find is that in the, the rounds we've had of people claiming to be Republicans, and in the Constitutional Convention where all sorts of models were put up, nobody has ever suggested that we should adopt the constitution of probably the most successful republic in the world in terms of longevity, continuous longevity, longer even than the, uh, I think, than the uh, Swiss Republic as a, as a confederation in unbroken years. And nobody, none of them suggest that we should adopt the American model, which is a real republic. Uh, why do you think the Republicans don't, don't offer to the Australian people the chance of uh, becoming exactly like America? An American Republic, yes. Mm. Well, first of all, I think one of the, the most interesting things about the, the campaign in 1999, that, that, and one of the most effective things, I should say, is that uh, most Australians agree that the reserve powers should not be handed to the politicians. And we don't, we don't, Australians don't want a politician's republic and, and without, and removing those checks and balances. But I think that the other thing that's very interesting about the Republican movement in this country is the last 20 years they've had to devise a model and agree upon a model whether that's the American model or Swiss model or, or any other or some, some, something completely new. They have not been able to agree. Every model that they've put forward has had its detractors. As a matter of fact, as you well know, the most recent one that was proposed after 20 years of, of consideration by Peter Fitzsimons, well, not by 20, 20 years of his, but just before he stepped down as from the, of the Republican movement, as leader of the Republican movement, was put forward and the the person who ran the 1999 campaign on the yes side, Malcolm Turnbull said, that's an absolutely unworkable model. So even the Republicans who are, have, a, have a strong voice on the subject can't, can't seem to agree on what the model should be. And unfortunately, I think for the current government, they have tied the voice referendum to potentially having a referendum on a republic at some point. And it, 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 in the same way, I think that they're handling the voice referendum. It, it's just, it's kind of a mystery. It's sort of a black box. They're just saying, well, just vote yes and, and then trust us. Well, I don't think the Australian people are that dumb to just vote for something without knowing the details. And I think it's the same thing on the Republican referendum. If they were to hold one, I think it would clearly lose because they haven't proposed a model that is that is that has been debated and agreed to. 
is that it's extraordinary in 30 years, roughly 30 years, they've only had three models. The first one, I remember writing about it and pointing out that what, they didn't seem to realize that what they were bringing into Australia was the French Fifth Republic. And it was only until a, a, a Republican judge from Victoria who was on the Constitutional Convention came to the same conclusion that they quickly removed it uh, and they produced uh, what was attempting to be a copy of the current system but which stripped, effectively stripped the president of the reserve powers which you point out is so important and uh, they did that by making the, the position of president so insecure that he could never exercise them because he'd be immediately sacked because the prime minister could dismiss the president. The only example of this in the world or, and in history, the prime minister could dismiss the president without notice, without grounds and without any right of appeal. So the president would be leading a very tenuous existence. And had he moved like Sir John Kerr had to, uh, he would have found that he no longer was president. This latest model that they've produced, you're so right. It, it, they've tried to join up those Republicans who want to elect the president and those who want to have an, a, a parliamentary appointed president They've uh, decided that, yes, we'll have an election. The candidates will be chosen. Each territory and each state will choose one candidate. The politicians will choose one candidate. And then Canberra, I think, will choose three candidates. And then the people will vote on that. But the president, he or she, will have no reserve powers. So it will be a, just a, an empty position of no consequence. And that's... It's been dismissed by every, every well-known Republican, I think, has gone against it, as far as I can tell. Well, you're, you're so right, they can't produce a model, so how could they possibly have a referendum uh, unless they just repeat 1999? There's one matter... Well, the other... Yes. I was just going to say, the other, the other key issue, I just wanted to back up for a moment to Sir John Kerr, and that is that the other issue that the Republicans cons consistently make is that, well, we don't have a, an Australian head of state and, and so on and so forth. Well, well, of course, we do in the governor general and who holds those reserve powers. And, and I think that it was interesting how when the palace letters came out and the Republicans were thinking it was going to be the smoking gun that, you know, the Buckingham Palace was calling the shots. And of course, it's exactly the opposite. Sir John Kerr was making all those decisions. He was informing uh, London after the fact, uh, in you know, informing the Queen at the time, and and making the decisions that were needed on the ground uh, in our country, and and you know, by an Australian government and an Australian head of state. Yes, you're so right. And uh, when the Parliament asked the the House of Representatives asked the Queen to reverse. The dismissal, Bucky, she, she sent back a letter saying that she was very concerned by what was happening, was following it, but uh, it would be unconstitutional for her to intervene because under the terms of the Australian Constitution, 
quite clearly the power to appoint and to remove a prime minister was vested in the governor general, clearly in the express terms of a, our quite ancient constitution, which is very thoughtful of the founders of this country. In fact, they, that was the first time any constitution in the empire provided for the governor general to have those direct powers. It was usually done by instructions later from London. It was done that way in the Canadian constitution. One of the, one of the matters which occurred during the coronation was the decision of the New South Wales government, of the New South Wales Premier himself, Mr. Mintz, to refuse to do what is done for every <coughs> celebration in Sydney, that is to use the sales of the Opera House to, to celebrate the event. And uh, it was decided, the Premier decided not to do this on the grounds of cost. There's an extraordinary cost which ought to be itself investigated, but uh, he, did, he refused to do that on the grounds of cost. Yet uh, recently we've seen the sales lit up, for example, for the visit of the Indian Prime Minister. Do you find, I found it a studied insult that Mr. Mintz did not authorise the, the illumination of the sales just to celebrate an event which doesn't happen very often. I, I absolutely, I think it's appalling. But I think he was falling in line with what the, the sort of the sentiments of the, the present government, which is, is, it seems to me, whether it's unsaid perhaps, it, it, that they're trying to create a republic by stealth. Mm. There's been no, there's been no coronation medal for a, uh, you know, there's been no celebration really. There was, there was a, 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 something in Canberra, I forget what it was now. Uh, you, may, you may know there was some uh, 21 gun salute. Yes, that's Something right. like that. And, and that was, but that was about it. You know, there was no stamp, there's no, they've now removed you know, the king from, uh, you know, the, the Australian paper currency. I don't think there's any plan to put him on the, any of the coins. Um, essentially, you know, they've ignored this momentous event, the first time, as you say, a coronation in 70 years. And whether you like our system or not, our system, you know, says that the, the king is the monarch. And that's in our constitution. So if you, you know, if they don't, if the Republicans don't like that, then they should put forward uh, a change and get it passed by the Australian people. But until then, I think that we, uh, that our government has an obligation to, to commemorate these sorts of events. Yes, the Australian people in every state, every state, when we federated, decided to, that we should be a constitutional monarchy. The preamble states that very clearly. We're, we're uh, an indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown and under the constitution. That was very clear. Nobody demurred from that in any significant way. Uh, the only thing is that what I mentioned, uh, the possibility of the governor general becoming a president, and that was uh, dropped. But uh, again, in 1999, the Australian people, in a very fair referendum, the, I think in terms of uh, fairness, uh, 
the example given by the Howard government was the, the gold-plated example of fairness because they behaved with absolute fairness to both sides. And there was no attempt, for example, to disguise government information advertisements, uh, which are really yes case advertisements as, as is happening at the moment. And uh, the Australian people freely decided to retain the constitutional monarchy. And they decided that nationally, they decided that in every state and in 72% of electorates. Australians a constitutional monarchy ran that campaign and uh, we're the only organisation with experience of running a winning referendum campaign. And to, to pretend that uh, we should put up with creeping republicanism seems to be completely inappropriate. So do you, do you see, John, what's your, what's your feeling as to whether we will be seeing in the near future a second Republican referendum? Well, I, I doubt it. I think that the polls are against them. I think that, as I said, that I think this current government, I think it was a, um, a grave error on their part to tie the voice referendum to a potential republic referendum that would that would follow because i think they're going to fail on both because they're i think that it's been mismanaged it hasn't been it hasn't been explained and and i think that the likelihood of us seeing a republic uh, a, re a referendum on the republic i think are, are they're slim and diminishing and and i think that um uh you know King Charles has, has only just started his reign. I think that he is becoming, I th my personal feeling is I think he's quite underestimated. I think he's done a lot of good for the world with the Prince's Trust and you've got, uh, you know, lots of underprivileged people being helped, you know, through that, through that uh, Prince's Trust scheme. You've got the Duke of Edinburgh scheme and, and many other things. He was on the forefront of, of a lot of issues of architecture and preservation and things like that. And I think that he is uh, perhaps not the most dynamic person, but I think that he's doing a lot of good for the world and I think he will continue to do so. And I think his, the respect, you know, being in the shadow of Queen Elizabeth II must be a very difficult situation. I know we're going to get on to Churchill in a, in a, in a, in some period of, uh, of of, during this conversation, but Randolph Churchill had a very difficult time in his father Winston's shadow, trying to make a name for himself and trying to um, uh, to not to outshine his father, but really trying to to match you know, the, the goodwill and the intellect and the you know match his father on a public stage. And I think that. Over time, we will see King Charles start step out of his mother's shadow, and I think start to, to uh, we've already started to see that how he's modernizing some of the monarchy, how he's he's slimming some things down, he's he's making some changes, and I think we will continue to see that through his reign, and I think the that he will continue to be be more and more appreciated as as time goes on. He was uh, criticised uh, as Prince of Wales uh, in recent years for his role in relation to the climate question. 
in global warming and climate change. And uh, on this very on this very station, on this very platform, uh, I had an interview with Fred Paul in which I defended the king in relation to his interest there. And I said that uh, one may disagree with his position on climate change, global warming, but the position he had adopted as Prince of Wales, and he's now playing it down, he's not, he's not uh, pushing that anymore, I don't think. But uh, that position was consistent with the position of uh, every prime minister and every leader of the opposition of every realm of which he might come to reign. This is what reign over when he became king. And uh, I, I agree with his views, for example, on the liturgy on, and on architecture, but there's no reason why why he should have to have the same views as I have on another matter. And uh, I think they were legitimately held. And I think he, he has behaved very properly as king. And that uh, when he has mentioned it, it's been done on ministerial advice. And I think he is entitled to do that. And uh, the Commonwealth has also referred to climate change, but that was because the members of the Commonwealth would have unanimously agreed to that in the communique. So I don't think he can be seriously criticised for playing politics. I, I think the other thing, I, I agree with you 100% on that. I think the other thing is that since he has become king, and I think even before, as you know, toward the end of uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign, he said that as king, he would, he would step aside from the debate on climate mm. change and leave that to the government of the day. And that, and it, and obviously, the uh, in his role as king, he shouldn't be taking political positions on any issue. That's not that's not the role, and I think he's acknowledged that. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. May we come to another of your considerable collection of interests, and that is the English Speaking Union. Could you explain to viewers what the English Speaking Union is, as you see it? Absolutely. It was, um, it was started in the 1920s, and Winston Churchill uh, was one of the very first presidents in, the, in 1922, 23, I think it was, or 21 to 22, something like that. And really, the organization promotes oracy. So uh, speaking skills, debating skills, and, and so on and so forth. That's the, really the core of, of what the English Speaking Union does today. You know, and as, as you know, our uh, our branch here in New South Wales is is celebrating a centenary this year. So it was formed in 1923 at Government House, and and uh, you know I, I every every year that I go to the debating finals and the speaking finals, the Plain English Speaking Awards, which is done here in New South Wales, every uh, every time I go and present an award or just a, just participating uh, as a as a guest. I am so inspired by these young people today, and I and I, if I'm given an opportunity to to give some remarks, I always make sure to point out that regardless of where these students end up, whether it's in the not NGO or the nonprofit sector, whether it's in the corporate world or in government, their speaking and debating skills are going to serve them well through their entire career. Their you know, their command of the English language is is something that is a skill that will serve them 
in, in, in whatever discipline they end up in. And for example, there's a, there's a great Churchill quote I'm sure you're familiar with, and then it, it's not it's not by Churchill, but it's about Churchill. And when when Britain was fighting the Second World War, 1940, and things looked pretty dire, uh, they were running out of weapons and running out of munitions, and things were getting um, the, the the material that was being sent you know across the Atlantic. It was 30 percent at some point was getting sunk uh, and not reaching. Uh, reaching the United Kingdom, um, and and of course, Winston Churchill is known for his great oratory skills. And it was an American broadcaster who said, because there was there was little else that they had to work with, and he said, Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle, mm. and that's really encapsulates what he did. Because they didn't, you know, he was mobilizing the people. He was mobilizing, you know, trying to do essentially kind of what Zelensky is doing today, mm. which is Zelensky's got an advantage with Zoom and and all of these these great technologies because he has been using his skills as a communicator that he's developed as an actor to uh, to mobilize leaders and uh, around the world to support the effort in Ukraine. And I think that you know leads me back to my initial point, which is that communication skills and a mastery of the English language are something that are uh, in, incredible skills, no matter what your career path might be as a young person. It's a slightly uh, parallel to the ESU, but it was obviously in the mind of those who started it. And that is the Anglosphere, this idea that there is this community of nations that speak English, that have a common legal system and common ideals and so on. Uh, this was dismissed, uh, I remember, a couple of years ago by Bob Carr as a silly concept and not something which brings us together. But I, I think it, uh, it still has special significance. For example, we have the... Uh, the agreement, uh, the intelligence agreement between the five uh, Anglo-Saxon powers, English-speaking powers. We have uh, very close relationships in AUKUS developing, which, which are special. I think there is something, there is a commonality between those countries that uh, speak English as their first language and particularly have a, a not dissimilar system of government in this country is a particularly it's probably the one of all the english-speaking countries which took more from the united states in terms of constitutional development we took the senate and the the supreme court and uh, other things which made us different from canada canada didn't do canada didn't take from the united states the institutions which we did to the extent that we did. I, I think there is something special. Is there not about the Anglosphere? Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that absolutely there is. And I think that uh, the recent AUKUS treaty that you mentioned is a, is a key uh, acknowledgement of that. You know, the five eyes, you know, the intelligence sharing has been around for quite some time. And, and that really is just, that's the English-speaking world, you know, a, a, limited, a limited number of the English-speaking world. But I think there's a certain trust that, between the countries. There's, and, and the AUKUS Treaty, of course, that you mentioned is the US, the UK, and, and, and Australia. Um, 
And a lot of people are referring to it as the submarine treaty, which, of course, that's that's a big component of it. You know, the Americans have never showed shared their nuclear technology with anybody in the in the world except for us and the, and the Brits now. The, um, and, and that's an, an enormous uh, trust that's been placed in us. But I think that now there's also there's a, a number of other things that uh, that Boris Johnson, for example, for example, supported, which is uh, more freedom of trade, more freedom of movement, you know, to have a, a system more like uh, uh, Australia and New Zealand, so that we've got people that have more mobility, where we get the people that um, that want to go and work in in different countries. So I think AUKUS and AUKUS and Five Eyes is kind of the beginning of what could be an even uh, an even greater alliance of the, the, the English-speaking countries, um, something along the lines of, of maybe, maybe I shouldn't say European Union because that's not necessarily a regarded alliance, but, but something, but an alliance of, of reliable allies that have a common, as you point out, a common system of justice, you know, courts of law, English common law and so on, and common traditions. And I think there's something very important about that, the language that connects all of those other things, all of those other elements. There's Greg Copley, who uh, has been on this program, who's based in Washington, places a very high status on AUKUS because he says it's the only worldwide Western agreement. Because the, when you look at it, uh, NATO is restricted to Europe and the North Atlantic. The old treaties that uh, we used to have treaties which brought uh, the United States and Britain into Southeast Asia, but they're gone, the old CETO treaties. And this seems to be the only one which is in existence. And I gather that the Canadians are, are interested in AUKUS, but it has, it has some very important aspects. Interesting that it continued under under the present government, the present administration in Washington. Uh, in fact, it was initiated under the present government of, or administration in Washington after the disastrous departure from Afghanistan. And I wondered whether to an extent that, uh, that accelerated the interest of uh, the US administration into showing that there was some close interest in the allies, because it, it followed uh, uh, if I recall correctly, what happened in uh, what happened in Afghanistan, which in many ways was disastrous. Can we go on to a related matter, and that is your very significant role as director of digital in a very prestigious organisation? When when I look at uh, who speaks at these and who goes to them, it, it's very much the Anglo-American leadership that turns up at these events and that is the International Churchill Society. Could you tell us what the International Churchill Society is and what you're doing in that society? Yes, of course. Well, uh, it started out in 1968, not long after Churchill's death. And it really started out as a book club. It started out in America, and there were a number of people who got together and decided, let's read some books about Churchill and read some of his writings and learn more about him. And that developed into what is today 
of the International Churchill Society, which was 30 or 40 chapters across the world, in Iceland and Portugal and South America and, uh, and a number in Canada and Canada and the U.S., of course, uh, and in the U.K. And uh, essentially, our the first patron of the organization was Lord Mountbatten. And after Lord Mountbatten's assassination in 1979, shortly thereafter, uh, the Churchill's youngest daughter, Mary, agreed to become patron. And she was an absolutely lovely, lovely woman. She instructed us frequently to uh, to keep the memory green and keep her father's keep her father's memory alive and keep the truth and keep the record accurate. And that was really the mission early on. And so we have done a lot of things along those lines of keeping her father's memory alive and helping young scholars publish books uh, and doing sponsoring lectures. We have an annual International Churchill Conference this year in October. It will be in, uh, in Edinburgh and we'll be aboard the Royal Yacht Britannia for a reception and we'll be at Edinburgh Castle and uh, with the Pipers and, uh, and we have a full slate of speakers for, um, for that event that's coming up. So it, it really, in recent history, has been keeping alive the memory of Winston Churchill. Our current chairman <clears throat> is much more of a visionary and entrepreneur um, and loves looking at the history of Churchill and what he said and what he did and, and so on and so forth. But there's so much more we can do. And one of his ideas, the part of his vision for the future of the society is not just to look at the past, but also how can we as the Churchill Society influence uh, young people influence scholarship, influence leaders in in the in the principles for which Churchill stood. So, for example, we have now uh, have a partnership with one of the world's longest-standing think to military think tanks, and that's called the Royal United Services Institute in London. And there's there's a branch here in in New South Wales as well, and so. They just did a. There was a private dinner that was uh, that was done in London with the current foreign minister, British foreign minister, uh, and James Cleverly. And he has that's the only private function he's done in his ministerial role. And and he spoke quite freely. It was Chatham House rules, so I wasn't there, and I won't know what exactly what was said. But they um, uh, it was a it was a fantastic event. And so it's a very well-respected group. And now the Churchill Society is allied with, it's called RUSI is their, their acronym, and, and other organizations to, to really promote free democracy, freedom, uh, military alliances, to create, um, uh, to create uh, essentially it, it's creating this Anglo uh, Amer uh, not Anglo-American, Anglosphere alliance with that you're talking about that, that AUKUS is certainly supporting. Churchill, uh, Churchill suffers from a bad press, even today in Australia, at least in the letter columns, letters columns and the, uh, the uh, commentaries sometimes. And he's blamed sometimes for some things which I think uh, are unfair to blame him. First, uh, Gallipoli, he's blamed about Gallipoli, 
which was a mistake, probably on the ground or on the sea as they were approaching where they should land. And it was probably the, was obviously the wrong place to land and to try to capture. But the, he, he's blamed uh, because he was very much in the forefront of arguing that uh, the British should attack uh, or, or neutralize Turkey, get Turkey out of the war. Uh, and I think that was a, that was a sensible, that was a sensible thing to argue. It was how you, how you then delivered it. But if you could have removed Turkey from the war, it would have meant that uh, Germany and uh, Austria would have had to move troops down from the west, kept them away from the Western Front and the Russian Front. And uh, you would have, uh, it was a sensible military thing to want to do. It was the execution, which is at fault, and you can hardly blame Churchill for that. Uh, is that your feeling? Yes, absolutely. I think that it was a, it was, it was not Churchill's plan, but it was certainly something that he became champion of. And it was a it was a pretty brilliant strategic move because because as you know in 1916 they were trying there was a there was a stalemate in the trenches in you know in France mm. and they were trying to figure out how to break the stalemate and part of that as you say was taking you know taking the Turks out of the war and 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 supplying the Russians through the supply lines through the the Sea of Marmara I think it is that's that's around that's. Uh, you know, essentially coming around to the the flank and trying to to break that stalemate in Europe, in continental Europe. But I think one, there's a couple of things. Um, first of all, Churchill was during that period first first Lord of the Admiralty, which is the political head of the Royal Navy. He was not in charge of the ground forces. He was not in charge of the uh, in, in anything else other than the Royal Navy, and he didn't have complete com control of the theater. So certainly he's partly to blame. And I think the, uh, the, the report that was published, I think in 1920 or something, uh, several years after this disaster, um, you know, largely exonerated Churchill, but he certainly, he, there was certainly some blame because he was a, one of the champions of that, of that proposal. But I'll tell you what, you know, uh, it taught him a, a lesson that he learned very well. One of which was, as you know, um, he, during the Second World War, not that, not that many years later, unfortunately, 20, you know, a generation later, 20 years later, um, he did not appoint a defense minister because he said, I want complete control. And he, so he played the role of prime minister and minister of defense mm. because he didn't want another Gallipoli where there was a, a, a fractured decision-making. Hmm. And so you could actually say that though Gallipoli was a terrible failure, military failure, and certainly a terrible blow to Churchill, you know, during that period, you know, he, he resigned and he, you know, it, it, it certainly um, damaged his political reputation at the time and, and all of that. But it, it also perhaps helped us win the Second World War because of that. Yes, and in any in any war, you can't win every battle. It would be ridiculous to think that you could, and mistakes will be made. And sometimes you just 
you just lose those uh, particular battles. The other thing he's often criticised about, and I remember on one occasion in the federal parliament, the prime minister, Paul Keating, launched a completely gratuitous attack on an ally on the United Kingdom and blaming Churchill for it, but blaming the United Kingdom for, and he put it in these terms, for abandoning Singapore, then abandoning uh, the whole of this part of the world and leaving us to the Japanese. Well, that was completely untrue, but uh, Churchill is blamed sometimes for the fall of Singapore, but of course he had issued very firm instructions to General Percival that he was not to surrender. In fact, it was Percival who decided to surrender against the instructions of uh, his commander. And uh, if anybody was at fault, it was Percival because uh, he, if he had allowed the battle to continue, it may well have been that the, the uh, Allied forces would have prevailed. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, and I think that, I don't know if you've been to Singapore recently, but there's a, uh, there's the, the former Malay British headquarters. And just behind that, there is a bunker in the, in the ground. It's in a sort of, a, I wouldn't call it a mountain, but it's in a, in a peaked, you know, a hill. And in this, in this bunker was, was General Percival's uh, command center during the invasion uh, by the Japanese. And in, mm. in, the, in the boardroom, in his staff, you know, staff headquarter room, uh, conference room, there is a telegram on the wall today from Winston Churchill saying, under no circumstances are you to surrender Singapore. You are to fight to the last man, every single man fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's essentially the, the gist of it. Mm. And that was to General Wavell, who was in charge of the theater, and a, and a telegram from General Wavell to General Percival saying, Churchill says, under absolutely no circumstances are you to surrender Singapore. Mm. And uh, it's, yeah. it's been found, has it not, that um, the Japanese were not as strong and not as well supplied as Percival thought. So he may well have made us not only, uh, not only did he disobey orders, he may well have made a, a wrong decision strategically. He was. He was. He was not outmanned, but he was outgunned. Mm. You know, there's there are uh, you know, these theories that have been put forward that you know there were the the guns in, that were in in the wrong emplacements mm. along the coast of Singapore, facing out to sea, and then that's partly true. There are gun emplacements there, and they were. The problem was that well, I think there were five of them. If they're and they're still visible today, they're still there as monuments. Um, you could swivel the the base 360 degrees, so they could have fired at the Japanese who were invading from the north. Mm. The problem was they had armor-piercing shells that were to be fired at invading ships, so they had completely the wrong armaments. They had an air force that were biplanes that were left over from the First World War, mm. and 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 of course the Japanese had these these new uh, highly efficient and highly effective. Mitsubishi Zeros. So, uh, you know, even though Percival had a couple hundred thousand, I think a couple hundred thousand men under his command, he was he was vastly outgunned, yes. and the Japanese 
the Japanese just, uh, you know, they had their little mini tanks because mm. Singapore is very uh, overgrown with, you know, with, uh, with the, in the jungle and the rainforest and so on. And these little mini tanks could go straight through. And, but, you know, Percival, what happened, what I've read anyway, is that he went in to this meeting with, I think there were 12 of his, uh, his command staff in this meeting, in this bunker in Singapore. And he went in with a plan to, 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 to fight the Japanese, to retreat and then to, you know, attack and, and go on the offensive and so on. And the 12, I think, I believe it was 12 field marshals and generals that were in that room were all against the plan and convinced him otherwise, including what was the, uh, the Australian general who was, uh, I can't think of his name at the top, uh, to my tongue at the moment. Was it Blaby? But he was, pardon? Blaby? No, oh. no, there was a general who was in charge of the Australian troops, I think at the time. Mm. Anyway, they were all against it and Percival changed his mind and, you know, and, and found a white flag somewhere. But, you know, he, in my view, he should have been court-martialed for that. Yes. And the British, had, uh, it wasn't that the British were going to abandon Singapore. They'd sent a fleet which went to the bottom of the sea because it didn't have adequate air cover against the Japanese. And after Singapore, they, they, they too had soldiers, a large number of soldiers, British and Indian, who were POWs of the Japanese, which was a terrible fate for anybody. But they then continued to fight in Burma. They continued to fight in India. And they maintained the fleet from uh, Sri Lanka, although they were running a war in Europe as well. It wasn't as though, as Keating suggested, that they just abandoned the whole thing, which is a ridiculous proposition. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made Mountbatten the, uh, the, the supreme commander in Southeast Asia. You wouldn't have a supreme commander with no troops. And uh, that went on to the end of the war. It was, uh, it was completely unfair. The other thing that uh, Churchill is sometimes criticised about in Australia is that when uh, the troops were being recalled from the Middle East because of the Japanese invasion, we had a substantial army in the Middle East. When they were being recalled, Churchill wanted us to send them to Burma where the fight was going on, but uh, Curtin wanted to bring them back to Australia. There was a complete uh, disagreement between the two. And uh, uh, Churchill is accused of wanting to keep our soldiers. Uh, this was again a question of what is the best strategy when you're running a war? Do you, do you, do you send your troops to Burma or do you, where, where the fighting was still going on or do they come back to Australia in readiness for an invasion. And I, I don't see this as a terrible thing that Churchill thought that it would be better to bring them back to Burma and used a lot of pressure to try and get the Australian Prime Minister to, to agree to that. In fact, there's a, there is a report, I don't know how true it is, that he, he considered broadcasting to the Australian people with his views and was dissuaded from doing that as uh, being constitutionally inappropriate for a British Prime Minister to speak to the people of another Commonwealth country. Yeah, I don't know all the details of that, but I think that, you know, generally, uh, you know, we uh, hindsight, it's, it's very clear to us, you know, now, what may or may not 
uh, have worked. You know, in the in the heat of the situation, you know, Churchill had his hands full with a war in Europe, trying mm. to beat Adolf Hitler, and obviously they'd agreed with uh, the the big three, with Stalin and Roosevelt, that the Pacific would come after the war in Europe was mm. won. You know, Britain was fighting for survival, and they were fighting for their lives, and there there was very much the um, uh, the threat of the British Isles being invaded by the Germans. Churchill, and it, yes, Churchill was a magnificent uh, leader, and he had such a way, as you rightly pointed out early, he had all his life such a way with the language, both the written language and the spoken language. His speeches are still stirring, and his writings is quite extraordinary, the amount of the uh, material that he turned out. One of, uh, one of the criticisms that I think can be made of him, but not only him, the whole, almost the whole cabinet, and uh, that relates to the Durham report, which I mentioned earlier. That was the 19th century report, which gave responsible government to Canada, and then it went to all of the other settled colonies. That is to say, you, you gave each of the colonies self-government with their own little Westminster systems in, and then we had one a long time ago in Sydney. It's one of the oldest parliament houses, continuing parliament houses in the world where you have the, uh, the Westminster system operating from the middle of the 19th century. Where they failed, I think, was in relation to India. They did it to the settled colonies, but it should have been extended. It was overdue in relation to India. They gave a lot of things to India. They had representative governments, not governments, parliaments. They had elected parliaments, including they'd set up a federal one, but they didn't give them responsible government. That is self-government. And by the thirties, it was overdue, but I think very few politicians saw that. And uh, even, even later, Churchill famously said, I did not become the king's, I think it was during the war, I did not become the king's first minister to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. It was time to let uh, India go to self-government, surely. And I think that was a mistake. But it was a mistake of the whole ruling, the whole British ruling class, I think, except for a couple of uh, exceptions who saw that time was up. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, that Churchill was certainly a champion of the British Empire. And he was, it was something he grew up with. It was something that he knew. He studied history extensively and, and saw the, you know, the impact that it had across the world. Uh, there's no question I think he was on the wrong side of the India bill. And he, you know, I think it, India could still be uh, dominion like, like Canada today if, you know, if that had been handled successfully. And, you know, one of the biggest criticisms is uh, about that, not only was Churchill on the wrong side of that bill, is that there was, you know, there was essentially civil war in, you know, in, in that, the, the line that divides India and Pakistan, you know, the Muslims going one way and the Hindus, you know, going the other and so on. And it was a terrible mess. But, you know, the, and the British probably shouldn't have pulled out as quickly as they did. But, you know... It was it was a very it was a very difficult situation. I, I think it I think the world and, and I think India, if you look at 
uh, Narendra Modi's reception in Australia in the last couple of days. And I didn't realize there's nearly a million people of, of Indian descent in Australia today. I think, and they were just cheering and, 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 um, uh, and really uh, devoted to the relationship and building the relationship, furthering the relationship between India and Australia, mm. uh, you know, with trade and with, you know, uh, with all sorts of things that they've been talking about for the last few days, mm. defense and, you know, and the new, um, there's a new quad, right, that includes us and, and India and Japan and the United States. And I think that there are, there are, uh, I mean, that's a legacy of the British Empire. And so it was a bit messy when the British pulled out, and I, and I think we'd all be better off if India was still in the tent rather than out of it. But perhaps uh, with some of these new developments in, in trade and defense and otherwise, we can build an even stronger relationship today with India. Yes. And I, I, that, I hope that we can. A few years ago, when Mrs. Gandhi was avoiding, avoiding a trial and imprisonment and declared a state of emergency, she got that state of emergency, it is said, by saying to the president, the Congress, meaning the Congress party, the Congress made you, now you must agree to this. He knew that he should not have granted a state of emergency. There was no justification for a state of emergency, but it put India under the dictatorship of Mrs. Gandhi for about 18 months, and some very bad things happened during that period of dictatorship. I don't think, I may be fantasizing, but I don't think that a governor general with the obligations as a governor general feels would have done the same thing. I think a governor general who has the loyalty to the crown, notwithstanding that he may be chosen by a particular prime minister, as happened in relation to Sir John Kerr, who was chosen by, by uh, Mr. Whitlam, but uh, appointed by the queen and had loyalty to the crown. I don't think a prime uh, governor general would have been likely to have done what the president did, and it may well have been to the advantage of India at the time. But th these are just my fantasizing and favoring a particular system. Uh, John, you've been uh, very generous with your time. Is there anything you would like to add about the uh, International Churchill Society and your role in it, which you would like to tell the viewers about? Well, just to, to briefly talk about um, uh, what I do is, is my background is in technology. I worked for Microsoft, as you know, for a number of years, and then Disney Online and so on. So, and I've been done consulting since then for a number of years. So my role at the International Churchill, Churchill Society really was to help um, the, help the society build its brand online and become a, a dominant force in the, you know, in the digital space. Um, and so I look after all the digital marketing across the world for the Churchill Society, that's email and social media and the website and all of those kinds of things. And it's really amazing during COVID and there, <clears throat> there are a few things, good things that came out of the COVID uh, situation, the pandemic. Now, obviously it was terrible, uh, very unfortunate, a lot of people died. Um, but I think that 
one of the things that came out of it that is a if, if you look if you're an optimist like me is that we had a an, an entirely virtual Churchill conference and we had people from Singapore to Sri Lanka to uh, to Slovakia tuning in for that Churchill conference thousands of people from around the world to learn more about Churchill and what he you know what he did and I think that helping facilitate a, a truly global conference like that across multiple time zones and with speakers in North America and speakers in the UK, that was a, that was a really terrific achievement. And we got so many incredible messages from people across the world saying, you know, I can never afford to attend a conference in person and come to, to New York or come to London or, or, or whatever. <clears throat> and I, and I was so pleased to be able to join the conference. So, I just, I absolutely love using my technology skills in, in furthering, you know, the, the mission of the Churchill Society, because it's just, it's, it's a really a, a, a confluence of, of two things that I'm very passionate about. And that's leadership, well, several things, history and leadership and technology. When is the next conference? It's in October in the first week, five to seven uh, October in Edinburgh. It, it's uh, it's available. Tickets are still available, and you just if you Google Winston Churchill and you look for the International Churchill Society, you will see it at WinstonChurchill.org. There's lots of information, and it'll be quite a great affair. Winston Churchill's one of his grandsons, Lord Soames, is is going to be the keynote speaker at the Black Tie Dinner on the Saturday night, and there's as I said earlier a full lineup of events and speakers. Uh, to uh, to fill out the rest of the conference. So if you couldn't get to the coronation, this would be uh, <laughs> the thing to go to, would it? It would be, especially if you've never been aboard the Royal Yacht Britannia. She is moored not far from Edinburgh, just a 10-minute drive or so, and we've taken the entire ship. So behind the ropes tours and a champagne reception with Winston Churchill's favorite champagne, Paul Roger, and so that'll be the that'll be the welcome event for the kicking off the, the conference. And to conclude, how do people find it on the internet? Uh, if you go to WinstonChurchill.org, you will see there's an events section right on the very front front page, and it's it's uh, it's the the links are all there, and all the information that's necessary is there. Well, John Olson, you've been very kind and generous with your time. Thank you very much. It's been a very informative interview. And this is Save the Nation on ADH TV. I'm David Flint. And until next time, thank you.